You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. This week on the show, we feature a conversation that, honestly, I never thought I would have. Indeed, the episode this week features a British-born super producer and new wave songwriting titan who I was able to talk to in his studio in the Bahamas. And this guy has created some of my all-time favorite songs and worked with some of the greatest artists of all time. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Dave Stewart, who most know as one half of the foundational synth-soul group Eurythmics, who he formed with longtime friend and muse Annie Lennox in 1980. But long before he would meet Annie and turn the music world on its head, he was just a soccer-obsessed kid in Sunderland, UK. A big fan of Delta Blues, but also with the futuristic beats and dancehall magic found in synthesizers. Somehow, he was able to fuse those two loves into an indelible body of work that has won Grammy Awards and sold over 100 million records and counting. To be real, before I started researching Dave's work... I only knew about those big hair days in the 80s when he created those chart-topping hits like Sweet Dreams and Here Comes the Rain Again, songs that played on loop in my childhood memories. And look, if you're calling a nobody podcaster from your studio in the Bahamas, you don't have to tell them how Sweet Dreams came to be. And yet, Dave was so generous with his time, he told me, the moment that spark happened. And yes, I wish I could have talked to him for days, not just the hour and a half we were able to spend together. Because you know what? He was able to go in and out of the lives of so many stars that create all the music we hear every day. He produced records by Mick Jagger, Aretha Franklin, Tom Petty, Gwen Stefani, John Bon Jovi, Stevie Nicks, Katy Perry. The list is staggering. And when Tom Petty, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, and Roy Orbison needed a place to go to create the Traveling Wilburys record, well, they went to Dave Stewart's house, of course. And sadly, I was not able to ask him anything about his tireless work raising money for AIDS research. Did he work directly with Nelson Mandela to create one of the most successful advertising campaigns for AIDS research in history? Yes, he did. He is all over the map, this guy. And the real reason we're here... It's his newest adventure. Dave has rejoined his spooky-voiced Louisiana-based blues interpreter Thomas Lindsay for a forthcoming full-length called Amitié, which means friendship or camaraderie in French. I was able to get my ears around an early copy of this thing, and man, I've never heard an album quite like this. Do me a favor, just go on Spotify and listen to the early first singles that are out, Liberation and Storm Came. They are like tiny microcosms of his entire career, his passion in one raindrop of sound. Let me take a step back real quick. I've been having a lot of doubt as an artist recently about where I belong and do I belong. What makes a songwriter, what makes a storyteller mean something? This week during quarantine, I've been working on a song about the 1921 race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's embarrassing to say, but I only really learned about it after seeing the show Watchmen on HBO. Long story short, the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma was burned to the ground over Memorial Day 99 years ago. When the smoke cleared, it said that nearly 300 black men, women, and children were dead. And for most of this last century, it was never mentioned in any of the history books. It was not mentioned that the founder of Tulsa, Oklahoma was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And as many of us marched this week in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, I began to think about how I could tell a story from my own perspective that made sense. And strangely, 
I couldn't write about what was happening right now. I had to write about the past and bring it into our present for us to remember. And as I played this song called 99 Years over and over again, probably annoying the hell out of my neighbors, I wondered if it was my story to tell. How do we bring protest into modern music? How do we tell the stories that have been forgotten in a way that's respectful and meaningful and powerful? Can any song have an impact? And if there was one man who would understand how to bring this song to life in a way that both had a foot in the past and a slingshot bringing it into the future, it'd be Dave Stewart. And there's a concept that Dave taught me at the very end of our conversation, and I really hope you get to the end of this one. It's a concept called lateral thinking. It's finding the space between yes and no. Finding the potential lurking under the surface of everything. Crashing two things that should never be together into one thing. Stewart describes how impressionist painters in the 1860s painted the world not as it was, but how it could be if that memory was perfectly distilled. That lavender field in the south of France, a dappled lily pond in Paris in spring, the silver light of the moon bouncing off a bridge in the cool hush of winter. How do you really capture that? How do you really tell that tiny story? How do you preserve beauty? pure beauty. And reading this now, it brings me back to a time when I read Irving Stone's brilliant historical novel, Depths of Glory, about the impressionist painter Camille Pissarro, and how after being dipped headfirst into that world of artists, I walked around the Art Institute in Chicago and saw that light glowing off the canvas like I had never seen it before. And if you stood right up close to that painting, it was like seeing a beautiful town through the gauze of tears. But if you stepped back, it was more alive and deeply in focus than anything I'd ever witnessed in a photograph. Somehow, those French towns, those glistening fields of flowers preserved in amber by that artist's hand, will always exist on a parallel plane in that artist's mind. Maybe it was Pissarro's accidental use of lateral thinking that allowed him to paint beyond reality, that allowed him to paint a million tiny points and dots and streaks of color and make it more real than reality itself. And I have to say, I'm super grateful that I can learn from sonic explorers like Dave Stewart. Honestly, I don't think it's really fair to call him a songwriter or a producer. Maybe he's more of a cultural engineer. At least, that's what this crazy Apple commercial in the early 90s says. And I think, you know what? They kind of nailed it. Here it is now. What is power? Power is stretching the conventional boundaries. Power. Begins with power, power, power and ends with power is three chords made into a song. Fascinating. Power is not wear a uniform. Innovative. Love is a belief in yourself. Solitude. Power is experimental. Power radiates. Power is constant creative exploration. Power is having the tools to communicate your vision. Okay, it's a little cheesy and over the top, but you know what? I think it kind of sums him up. His new record with Thomas Lindsay, Amate, comes out on Bay Street Records July 17th. I'm really excited for everybody to hear it, and you can go on Spotify or wherever you listen to music and hear the first two singles that are out already. So I'm going to stop talking now and hand it over to the man himself. Here he is now, Dave Stewart. I appreciate you jumping on with me, and I, I really been enjoying the new record that you guys are, have been working on. Thank with, you, uh, Lindsay. Man, what what an insane group of songs! <laughs> yes, yeah, you can say that again. I think 
when people asked us, you know, to give it a genre, you know, when you, whether it's on iTunes or Amazon or wherever the album is, it's the genre. And it's like, I just can't tell you what the genre is. It's, you know, it, some of it started off, you know, me in a hotel room with just a Dobro guitar recording a whole tune on my iPhone and sending it to Thomas, Thomas Lindsay, my partner in Stuart Lindsay, and he's in Louisiana in the kitchen or somewhere and singing on it and sending it back. But we made an album before where we were never in the same place, you know, called Spitballing. And what happened was, weird, uh, when this lockdown happened, it was didn't really change anything for us because we always made music in this weird way. But, you know, it goes off into funny areas of gospel and then all of a sudden it's got an electronic section comes in, like on um, Storm Came, you know, it starts off sounding like an old blues song. And then it, and anyway, I was thinking, <laughs> funnily enough, um, a lot of early Eurythmic songs, when we stripped them down and used to play live, and I would play just, you know, uh, a Mosrite slide guitar, Missionary Man, and I right. would sing and no band, just me on the slide, Mosrite, Dobro, and her singing. And it sounds like an old blues song, you know. So um, <clears throat> it's almost like going back to 1982. And the way that we recorded, too, you know, back in 1982 was with an eight-track. You know, you couldn't, you know, you had to just sort of really concentrate on things you were putting down. Um because you didn't want to use up all the tracks on. And we kind of did right. the same thing here because he was sort of on Garage Band and then he was sending stuff back to me. And I tried to make it as minimal as possible, but sometimes the sounds sound really big. You know what I mean? Like, uh, right. Because the way they were recorded, sometimes I would. There's things on there you wouldn't believe it. It's like. It's like um, I'd be outside in the Bahamas. They have a thing called Junkanoo. It's a bit like Rio Carnival or something. Mm. And right. lots of people banging drums and shaking huge sort of cowbell shakers in the street. And sometimes I'd mix that in with a marching band because they have a little marching band on the island. And actually, I, I just bought them uh, their instruments, you know, like trumpets and trombones and snare drums and I'd record these on my iPhone sometimes where they were practicing our marching past and sometimes you hear some of that mixed in with like Thomas singing in his kitchen and me playing Yeah, it's like a field recording it's like a field recording vibe like Alan Lomax exactly in the modern age yeah a lot of it is a field recording mixed with me in a hotel room like Robert Johnson <laughs> In, but except in a hotel room in Madrid or in Paris or somewhere. And then here back on the island when we're all in lockdown on the outside or in a basement or banging a weird looking drum, uh, all mixed together. And, um, and of course, Thomas's voice is not like a voice you hear these days, very rare, almost like. You know, the first time you hear Nina Simone or something, 
He's, he's an incredible singer. I can't even explain, you know, when I'm working back and forth with him, I solo sometimes what he's actually sung. And just, even though I've heard it like 50 times, I'm going, wow, like he's just easily, you know, climbing up to this ridiculously high note and swooping down again to a low note. It's all one take, you know. And then somehow getting his mouth round these words and making it sound easy, but I know that's not an easy thing to do, you know. Thomas Lindsay's voice uh, reminds me of almost a young Roy Orbison, but almost on another plane. And you worked with Roy in, you know, the Traveling Wilburys. Do you feel like there's a connection there in some way? Well, I didn't actually work with them. I sort of watched them because they were all yeah. recording in my house. But, um, yeah, you know that very, when Roy can go into that falsetto, is perfectly pure. Thomas has that thing. Thomas also then has, I think, a bit of more sort of uh, blues roots. You know, he was right. and is obsessed with the blues, and he's from Louisiana, and he's got a kind of country blues gospel in him. You know, that if I made an album, I remember Ray Charles made this uh, country album. It was really amazing. I had it on vinyl, and I used to sit with my little daughter outside when she had a lemonade stand and that yeah bring out the portable record player and we put on this mm -hmm. ray charles country gospel album he made as a matter of fact she turned out to be a singer it's a family business yeah well no, i think just this soul gospel thing kind of always appealed to her because when i took her to amoeba records when she was about 10 she ran straight to the gospel blues soul section and was into Etta James and picking up all these things that she didn't know what they yeah. were, but she sort of gravitated to that. But Thomas has that quality going on uh, without trying. You know, like it's not like somebody is trying to, oh, how do I do that? How do I emulate that? It just comes out like that. Let's talk about that opening track, Storm Came, because it, I think it exemplifies what you bring to a lot of modern music, which is this experimental futuristic energy fused with tradition and rustic blues sounds that I think no one else has really done quite like you. Um, and it starts with this, you know, your slide guitar sort of mirroring the voice, but then it goes into this dark synth growl in a way, almost like an EDM dance track. You know, I know. Like a, a, yeah. You know, right. a dance hall in, in Spain somewhere. And you fuse those two together in a way like how you did early rhythmic stuff. Yeah, like sweet, it feels sweet natural dreams. somehow, even though it's crazy. Well, funny enough, that sort of, uh, it was, I put my um, sort of Dobro slide guitar down first. So Thomas, it's the other way around. Thomas is sort of mirroring the melody and playing on the guitar. So, you know, there's a train out there, you know, de -de 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 and all that stuff. Right. And then when <laughs> he goes, the storm came, not that I sort of went into almost like a sweet dreams world of heavy duty synthesizer sound, which you're quite right. I'm searching always like, hang on, I want this ARP Odyssey from the 60s sound mixed with a Roland, you know, from the 
early 80s and are going right. for that growl, you know, like it's not, a, I don't like just straightforward, um, you know, when you're just using sort of plugins and soft synths and all that stuff. I mean, um, I know that everybody's trying to sort of go back to getting that feeling when you hit a keyboard and you've done all of the changing yourself on the little dials, you know, all of the various sustain and modulations and frequencies and all that stuff. But there's something about going for that right bass sound on a synthesizer and, and not just sort of putting up with, Oh, that'll do. So I'm like a stickler for like, when that comes in, it's got to sound like, Oh my God, what happened? You know? So if you turn the track up, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, like suddenly it's, as you described it, you know, it's like, hey, we're in the middle of a club now, you know. I think you also sort of hit this this thing that's happening right now where a lot of DJs and, and modern dance music producers are sampling blues and old country music in a way that feels like two eras crashing together, and yet they're totally natural in a way because it's all yeah. inspired from those early tunes, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, looping up. Uh, sections of like blues music or country music and realizing, oh my God, this is the root of what I'm actually doing, you know, with synthesizers. There's a realization happening amongst lots of, uh, you know, DJs and programmers and stuff. The weird thing is on the Sweet Dreams album, for instance, a song like The City Never Sleeps, which was used in Mm -hmm. the Nine and a Half Weeks movie, but it, it starts just with a, like a. It's got a little riff, you know. It's actually the whole thing starts with. Um, I have my sort of guitar, a slidey guitar in a kind of, and I mixed it up with the wheels of a train coming in the station, in Camden Town mm. in the underground subway, and recorded it on a little tape recorder down there and mixed it with the guitar sliding and then the riff comes so in cool. and then it's it's kind of like a blues gospel song but it's on a totally sort of electronic based record um so i've been i've been doing that for a while i think it started when i got one christmas or a birthday um i got this little tiny reel-to-reel plastic tape recorder toy kind of thing when I was, I don't know, about 10. And um, I wasn't into music or at all or anything then, you know. I was just wanted to be a soccer player. and uh, But I got this tape recorder and had a little plastic microphone and tiny little reels, uh, you know, like about the size of, you know, a, a large coin. <laughs> it could only probably record for about three minutes or something. Anyway, I realized, oh, yeah, 
I can record like outside and then come back in my bedroom and play it back. And this, I had like massive epiphany, you know, like it was kind of mind blowing. So I went into the, the shop next door was a pie shop, you know, like a baker's bread and pies. And I would just right. go in there and like, you know, listen, just record the shop, you know, like what's going on. And then go back into my house next door in the bedroom and play it back. And I was going, for ages, I was like, I don't understand this. This is reality, only now it's delayed. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's played back. Well, it's like, it's like you, started, you started producing and collecting sound before you actually wanted to make your own sound. Exactly. I wasn't interested in music at all. I was just like, oh, this is like really strange. I can... Actually, it was like a cinematographic sort of feeling. It was like, as soon as I played it, I got like visuals of being back in the shop, right? So, and I did that right. for a while, you know, like I uh, would go and like out in the field, it was a little battery operated thing. And I would just lie in the grass and just put the mic down and the wind on the grass and everything. And then I'd go back in my room and play that. And so I think that's where all of the fascination of actual recording began, as opposed to music. It started with sounds. Just Now, when I met Connie Plank, a German producer, um, mm -hmm. amazing, and he and him and Holger Sukai from Cannes and um, Jackie Liebsight, and we were all talking... And they started teaching me about this way they were recording using sound. And I was like, I didn't think of it at the time, but I was thinking, oh, they were fascinated with the same thing. So they didn't care about like all of the EQ on the board and the snap that were like moving mics around and dropping, yeah. dropping things down wells and recording it. And then when Connie came to Japan... Me and Connie went, uh, Connie went into the bamboo forest and were tapping large bamboos with a stick and small and recording it, you know. And so on a Eurythmics album called Savage, nearly all the sounds are from, you know, the recordings of Connie and I <laughs> banging things in Japan in various places. Um, hmm. So it's been a continuation of that fascination really of jumbling up the sounds as you mentioned at the beginning um not sticking to one lane genre or oh hang on this is a blues uh track so it must just have you know guitar bass drum or just guitar or just this it's like no actually now we're in the field <laughs> and actually talking about in the field i made a film called deep blues and i recorded in the field jesse may hemphill playing a snare drum and um, another guy playing a fife made out of bamboo, showing the kind mm. of roots of blues. And then we went into the whole history of blues with a lovely guy, Robert Palmer, who was the writer who wrote Deep Blues, the book. So the film's called Deep Blues. And um, he was a sort of New York Times music critic, wrote for Rolling Stone sometime. And... Um, I went really into the depths of, you know, Delta Blues recording in the field again, you know, and R.L. Burnside and 
the oil man and um, all you know a lot of different blues players but it was all field recording to a great director called Robert Muggy and we're going to re-release that movie on the 30th anniversary of it so in 2001 and eh, not 2001 <laughs> 2021 so we've just been you know getting all the master film and tapes out and there's extra recordings that we didn't put in the movie so it's quite exciting there's a song of yours um, that actually I think won a Grammy missionary man 1986 that kind of symbolizes some of that down-home blues being merged with this new wave synth sound that you created you know have you start with that little Walter type harmonica and you think it's almost like you're sampling something from another time but it definitely is rooted in your sort of modernity and I'm curious how that song came to be because I, I loved jamming to it the last few days well yeah you know it's not actually a harmonica it's just um Annie pretending she's a harmonica with her mouth and uh not really going wah, wah, wah. yeah and uh but actually the the sort of feeling of that is a weird mixture of like a a Stevie Wonderish clavinet kind of bluesy funky thing on the verses and some you know gospely type of references um but the blues element of it is it's in this kind of feeling of the song as opposed to the way it's played and structured, you know? And then it's got a real harmonica solo, amazing mm. uh, solo in it. But um, I think the, the weird thing about that song, you know, is um, it's, it's kind of a voodoo song. Um, mm. And so the video, I was just showing my friend the other day, at the beginning, you know, there's a snake and I'm like in a, some kind of, looks like chemical pharmaceutical lab or something, except I throw right. an, an apple inside of a sort of weird, you know, flask. And then the snake and the apple, and there's all these like weird biblical references. And then Annie starts growing inside of it, which was all filmed by my friend Willie Smacks, who... At the time, you know, there was not so much these, you know, computerized, you know, tricky things. It was all done naturally by a, a wax burning huge candle backwards and then the wax being right. being dripped and forming Annie out of... <laughs> it's very freaky, kind of. And then that, the film has got frames chopped out of it on purpose, so when Annie's moving... She looks jerky, almost like in a bad trip, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, I can't imagine, actually, because when you're doing it, you see you see every stage. But I can't imagine what people thought when it first came on MTV. <laughs> it's like, what is happening, you know? And then her face is jammed in this machine with all sort of, seems like sort of needles being pressed through her cheeks and all. It's like, again, it was like, this collage of old voodoo mixed with modern voodoo. And I, speak, I suppose, talking about the Stuart Lindsay album, that's kind of what we're talking about. 
old voodoo blues, but then suddenly it flips into modern voodoo blues. And, um, and I think that runs through just about everything I've done, basically. Well, I was born an original sinner. I was born from original sin. And if I had a dollar bill for all the things I've done, there'd be a mountain of money pile up to my chin. Well, there's a transformation, it feels like, that goes through your your life when you, you, you know, you ran away from home in Sunderland to join a folk band, right? And then, you know, you meet Annie Lennox. She's in a long flowery dress with kind of long hippie hair. And then, you know, a few late years later, you guys sort of transform into this almost singing robot duo that <laughs> no one's ever seen before from another planet. Yeah. Um, but still taking some of those acoustic and rustic elements and sneaking them in the back door, you know, and that's, you know, something that makes your music so accessible to me as someone who doesn't admittedly love new wave music or most uh, sort of pop music from the eighties. But, you know, something like sweet dreams is like one of my all time favorite songs. It fires me up every time it comes on the radio and it has this tribal four to the floor, just, timeless beat that you want to just get down to. And I'm curious how your relationship with Annie Lennox has really changed your life and how meeting her really set everything in motion. Yeah. Well, it was, it was funny because it was a long trip before we actually decided to make music together. You know, we were in a band called the tourists and they made three albums and we didn't write any songs at all. We were just in the band but we were obviously living together as a couple for before that and after that. But then when we decided to live separately, we, um, I went to this shop and they had just got this little synthesizer in the shop. And um, just before that in Australia, I had with me this plastic thing called the Wasp. And it was like a very early touch. It was like one step further than a stylophone, <laughs> you know, like a yeah. touch synthesizer thing. But I could make sort of weird Aborigine sounds using a random generator and random noise generator. And by just actually, I don't know, I was just making all this weird shit on it. And um, Annie was really like, well, wow, that's like really interesting, strange. So I took a picture of Annie against a wall with white stuff on her face and her eyes rolled back and a towel on her head and these kind of voodoo skulls around her neck, which was the first single, uh-huh. was the first single cover for <laughs> Never Gonna Cry Again. And um, we're just like, you know, even though we broke as a couple, we were like really uh, close friends. And so... When she came back from visiting her parents in Scotland, I'd already been making these tracks, about half of which are the basis of the Sweet Dreams album, like the song called The Walk, you know, and um, I'd made it on this, like, one synthesizer and a little tiny drum machine and a space echo, which I was amazed by this space echo, Roland space echo, you know, 
and things you could do with it, which is in a lot of uh, yeah. Jamaican dub music, you know, it's like, you know, jang, 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 and all that. And if you slow down the tape mm. as you've put it into the tape, <clears throat> all this kind of stuff. So I, when Annie came back, I made these recordings and she was fascinated by them. And that's when we started, like, making this experimental music. And then we started experimenting with, like, how everything should be. Because after being in a band, it was very, you know, difficult, uh, democratic sort of look, feel, this and that. And Annie and I had our own ideas, but weren't really the songwriter or the leader or whatever. And so we then decided how we really wanted to be. And one thing Annie wanted to be was to be taken, like, seriously as an artist, not like, oh, there's a female singer. Uh-huh. So we're, then we came up with, okay, let's have identical suits and let's, you know, let's be... And it was all more influenced by the art world than anything else. Uh, I had a friend called Alan and, you know, we we would go, and Annie and I would go to, you know, see different art things at the ICA, Institute of Contemporary Art, and then we got interested in what Gilbert and George were doing, and the first thing Annie and I ever released, actually, was with Chris and Cozy from Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> so that was, like, mm-hmm. the most underground band, I think, ever, still, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... um and it was actually this just sort of tribal beat and a s- sequence of bass. And it was for Cozy Fanny Tutti, who was part of Throbbing Gristle. She was going to st- do a strip tease to it at the Institute of Contemporary Art, which caused a bit of an uproar. And um, so we came in sort of really left field and ended up having a smash hit around the world, which we weren't expecting at all. You know, like Sweet Dreams just blew up beyond and I think it was because we weren't trying to make a single or anything in fact you know the record label was like they just didn't understand Sweet Dreams they were saying well what is it (laughs) where's the chorus (laughs) like we we don't understand what it is you know but funny enough today which is now what like 33 years since we released it we made it in 1982 it came out on January 1983 in in America, I think. Um, we uh, today it's still played as much as it was then. So it's never come off radio, festivals, people doing versions of it. It's just nonstop. Even yesterday, somebody sent something to me and they said, "Oh, look at this," and it was on that app. TikTok, right, which is what, you know, right. um, you know, loads of kids are obsessed with it. They said, look at this. And it was just literally somebody had put up a bit of sweet dreams and then it was just people turning their heads around on the beat. Different, right. pe- different people. Had 43 million views. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> it's like, I don't know why, but that... That beat, which happened because, okay, the sound of the drum and the beat, that's another story, is uh, this friend of mine at the time, Adam Williams, who has helped us sort of 
put up our own home studio and would help engineer. Now, he was the bass player in a band called Selector. Um, okay. A sort of British ska band. And uh, <clears throat> we'd heard about this drum machine, uh, but the, the thing is, the guy had not really built it yet, so we had to go down to this, drive to this place down in South England, and we slept on the floor while he was still putting it together. And it was like, you know, you see it in the Sweet Dreams video and it's surrounded with a wood surround. And it was the first one with a little kind of monitor that looked like a, when you're looking at a heart uh, beating, you know, in an old movie on the side of a hospital right. bed. And, and it had like a typewriter and it had real um, sounds in it that like a tom-tom sound that you could tune down, right, or tune up and stuff that nobody had one of these things. So I was trying to work it out. It was driving me nuts. You know, it kept doing everything opposite. And all of a sudden, you know, and he was lying on the floor, kind of getting bored and a bit, she was feeling a bit down anyway. And all of a sudden, I had the first beat with a huge tom-tom that I tuned all the way down as far as it would go on top of the bass yeah. drum, and it went dum, 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 like this, and the bass drum was four on the floor, and I had a Roland SHO one and Annie was like, leapt up <laughs> from the floor, like, what? It, was, it gave you a shock as well, because I had the speakers way too loud when it happened, and, uh, yeah. and she was like, what? And then there was a guy, it wasn't ours, but, the guy who owned the picture framing factory that we were above had a uh-huh. Kurzweil and she kind of switched it on. That was the sound was on a stringy sound. So she started playing at the same time as this sequence and this drum going boom. And there in three tracks was basically Sweet Dreams. Sweet dreams are made. amazing how songs you know can carry through time without any lag or any uh you know there's no date to them like that song feels like it could have been in the 80s or it could have been last week like you just can't tell and i think it's partially because you mix in these you know genres that don't normally come together you have her soulful Mm -hmm. almost aretha franklin type vocals with these futuristic drum machine tracks mm-hmm. and another song obviously a, a, a big hit you know here comes the rain again yeah off the record touch you know you have this classical uh pizzicato drive throughout it you know it's like you have an orchestra but yeah. also these emotive emotional lyrics and that song for me is so sexy and so romantic but it always has this there's this ominous uh, thread throughout it, you know, and there's, I feel like that is also in, in sweet dreams where it's like, you're, you're excited about something, but there's this dark. Yes. Message well, that you're trying to get out 
in the poetry behind it. You've hit the nail on the head because Annie and I always talked about uh, reality songs. In other words, like nothing is just over the top fabulous that it's a Disney world, you know, yeah. and nothing is so dark with no way out that it's just, I mean, people do make that music and death metal music and, you know, but in our world, we liked to try and sort of emulate reality, uh, which had has moments of joy and moments of melancholy, and then try and put it into three minutes. So on that song, uh, Here Comes the Rain, what's interesting is um, that is a crazy mixture of stuff because it is a real orchestra, uh, but recorded down corridors and in bathrooms <laughs> in a half-built mm. church... Uh, with Michael Kamen trying to conduct them hanging off a staircase, and me playing <laughs> me playing an old Gretsch country gent guitar, you know the chord the with a whammy bar, and um, and those little high sequences, and then the pizzicato coming, boom, 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 and then the little and. And then there's a drum machine and a sequencer, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is all in the space of the opening. <laughs> it's like an orchestra, a great country gent, uh, an SHO1 uh, being sequenced, and then pizzicato strings and the whole orchestra, and then <clears throat> that drum machine I'm talking about, you know, the movement audio-visual coming in, and a, a low bass sequence. Uh, so it's impossible for anybody to put a tag on it. And then, of course, Annie's voice just is, you know, the cream, which the velvet, soulful kind of here comes the rain again comes in as a line. But in kind of, you've already won 3-0 if it was a soccer match, if you know what I mean. Like <laughs> The other team's brains are scrambled because they're like, oh, what? So, um, yeah, we always like that. Right? We always used to say, take no prisoners, like, musically. Like, if something's not doing a function, then don't have it in, in, the, in the record. You know what I mean? Don't have it on the, in the mix. When it started to become people making records <clears throat> with huge um, amount of tracks available and huge mixing desks, and they'd put on like seven guitars and go, we'll sort it out later. And, oh, yeah. do a fourth drum take and we'll decide later. I think what happened is the poor guys who were trying to mix it and obviously were spending the whole time trying to get a balance. So if you imagine the faders were all like in parallels rather than in verticals. So when you're mixing something with only four or five tracks and you, sometimes you just pull something completely out and and you know things going up and down like that they had like you know 48 faders all looking like they were in a straight line with a bit of a wave in it and then mm. on top of that they had all these variations of eq you know you could select uh you know a frequency and play around with it well as Connie Plank used to say, as soon as you start doing that, you're just taking something away from the sound. So it's better to move the microphone about till you get the sound huh. right 
than to actually start trying to EQ it into a sound you want. So it, that being said, when you're talking about synthesized music, why I go on about the analog synthesizers is I would try and get the sound right, you know, darling, you know, with physical turning knobs and things till the sound was right. Not be downloading a sound or using a soft synth with uh, plugins and go, oh, this is one someone made earlier. That's about right, if you know what I mean. Yeah, old school. Yeah, old school, yeah. So when you were when you were a young man, you actually got signed by Elton John's label, right? The Rocket Record Company. Yeah. And with the Long Dancer. Yeah. And did you think, you know, when you were a young man that this was going to be the rest of your life or you thought maybe this was a a moment in time that would pass? Oh, I I, I had no idea it was going to be the rest of my life. In fact, when the band split up, I never thought, oh, well, I should form another band or I'm a songwriter or whatever. I just thought, oh, well, that's the end of that, <laughs> right? And I was, you know, whatever, 21 or something. Uh, what did it, you think you were going to be? Oh, I had no idea. I just thought, oh, that must have been how that was, you know what I mean? And by the way, the two years previous is insane. You know, you got Elton John at the peak and we're on tour with him and he's singing... Um, you know, from the Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, Rocket Man, and all these songs, and we're in cycle stadiums mm-hmm. in Italy, and, you know, it was insane, you know, like, experience. So it almost wasn't real. You know, looking back on it now, I understood what happened, but at the time, it was just you went from, like, living in a squat, you know, uh, to suddenly you're in the sort of penthouse suite of the Hilton Hotel in Rome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and a bit like in the movie when Elton John goes to L.A. and plays the troubadour, you know, and the next thing he's in Hollywood and there's these parties and you're being approached by people. And so it was a bit like that. I've said we were with Elton, so it was like that. <laughs> I mean, um, everything was just like not really... You couldn't compute it with our, my age and where I'd come from in the northeast of England. It just didn't register as any kind of reality. So when I was suddenly not in the band and in some kind of reality I understood, um, uh-huh. it was like, oh, shit, okay, so now what should I do? Oh, I know. Uh, I love music. And there was a market started in Camden Lock and there was one guy had a, his first stall there, and I was the second person to say, well, I think I'll sell albums. And the albums, I was thinking, but how do I get the albums to sell? And somebody told me, well, there's this guy, and he's got Trojan Records from Jamaica that he will let you sell 
if you then on sale or return. So say you have okay. 50 albums and you sell 12, you know, and you bring the rest back. So I started doing that. And of course, then my my stall suddenly was shrouded in smoke <laughs> because I was playing these Trojan vinyl albums and it just attracted Jamaicans and all sorts of people around my stall. And uh, I was always getting into trouble because of people were smoking weed and like just standing around <laughs> the stall and not buying anything. And um, <clears throat> so that led to all sorts of weird musical journeys like this guy from Osabisa came up and go hey you know in a African accent that I can't do but like uh, you like this music yeah why don't you come around my flat I'm going to play you some music I went around there and he was with lots of his friends and we had this great sort of cassava and some African food and they started jamming and they were playing in all these rhythms and I had my acoustic guitar and so I started learning all these African type rhythms you know which I later right. used a little bit in uh, eurythmic stuff but you know I was playing stuff like with them like now if you play that to a straight um American drummer, they always wonder where yeah. the one where the one is. You know what I mean? So, yeah. where's the first beat in the bar? And it's because this crisscross rhythms, which Osabisa meant, crisscross rhythms that lead to happiness or something. So, I just went on a musical exploration kind of journey for a bit, right to the point where I went running off with a sort of experimental all-girl social political sort of troop you know who uh half a play a sort of play mixed with music and i ran off with the the leader of that um and ended up you know in germany in this massive car crash uh which was won't bother going into a bit of a nightmare but um and then when i ended up back in london recovering from that that's when i met annie so I'd already done this like crazy amount of music journey before I met Annie. And Annie had done a little bit, but she'd been at the Royal Academy of Music, didn't like it. Right. And uh, playing in a jazz group a bit and another duo. But I had this sort of wealth of other kind of music. And when I met her, you know, we sort of started talking. This on the first evening we met. And we sort of stayed together <laughs> right from that evening, you know, well, but we're still talking to each other nearly every day. But, like, I mean, literally, the conversation just went on from there all the way through all making all those uh, records and that music. It's interesting because you can't really explain a journey. And even when people try to make films or documentary films about uh, a journey into a world of something or with someone, it's you can make a great impressionistic version of it, but you can't really, it would take too long. <laughs> and uh, people would sort of like, you don't want to go through all the twists and turns because then it would be like the film would be as long as reality, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah. but basically, 
I think my musical education before I met Annie and then carrying on with Annie, who, who was amazing like in many ways in her musical journey, the two of us together was insane because she'd come from a classically trained world and obviously obsessed in Scotland hearing Motown music and Stax music on the radio occasionally and thinking, what's that, you know, and she'd, she could sing in that way, you know. So it was kind of a, an explosion once we realized, hey, in the Eurythmics, we can do anything we want. Going all the way back to the Stuart Lindsay album, it's a bit similar. We, we can do whatever we want because, you know, we don't really care what people think. We're not really trying to get on any radio or anything. We're just trying to make stuff that we like. And so yeah, we're sending it backwards and forwards and Thomas is going, Oh my God, like he had no idea. Sometimes, you know, he'd just sing something in midair, well, I mean, with no instruments, and send me it. And I would then sort of work out these strange chords, like the beginning of um, Liberation, you know. He's just singing in mm. midair, and I'm putting these chords between it and then coming in with when the chorus comes in, and almost like a almost like uh, a plucked, you know, that dampened plucked type of guitar that you play in, like reggae and soul music, you know, this kind of... You know, and with a beat. Now, he wasn't expecting anything like that to come in, you know. So it, it was good fun sending him it back and him going like, wow. You know, then he'd go, okay. Then he comes back with another little idea and... And then he comes back with some back and vocal ideas. And it's just like, um, it's like letters going backwards and forwards, you know. Uh, except we're never in the same place, which is what's happening right now and with everybody at the moment. Um, you just have to uh, learn, okay, this has happened, so we're doing it this way. Fortunately, as I said with Stuart Lindsay, we already started doing it this way with the spitballing album so this new album amitié which means friendship in like creole french same thing we haven't really changed our method going through your insane career you know there's a, there's a record that made me made me laugh looking at the title because it's so fitting now uh, aretha franklin's who's zooming who that you did in 1985 and you know, we're all forced to communicate through these video screens and different teleconferencing things. <laughs> oh, my you know, God, like, yeah. Like Zoom. That should be... <laughs> who's Zoom and who? It's amazing nobody's really used that yet in uh, their commercial, you know. Uh, yeah, Zoom, come on. What are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the, everybody's trying to sort of build as fast as they can, like the Zoom competition. Well, what's... I wish somebody would solve the latency problem because, you know, yesterday I'm writing a musical with, yeah, jo with Josh Stone and, and I'm also working with a couple other people. Uh, the other day with Gary Clark Jr. Um, but, you know, when, oh, wow. you, when you play, you're kind of out of sync with them when they're playing at the same time. Right. And Zoom especially is bad because when one person speaks, it cuts to them and their yeah. picture and their sound and you're cut off, right? So... If House Party works better, House Party, the app. Yeah, that's what I've heard. 
yeah, the little app, you can get a little bit in sync. But somebody who works out how to be totally in sync, then all of us, like Annie and I just did something the other day for UNICEF. But we're trying to play together, but it's like out of sync. So I have to film myself playing the guitar and send it to Annie, who can hear it in her earphone, and then she can sing and play the piano. And it's like, you know, but if everybody could just play live together. Weirdly enough, a friend of mine, blimey, this is about 1995 or something, had invented something that actually worked. And it was, I think it was called Real Networks or something. Uh, and it was Res Rocket or Real or something. Anyway, I I got, uh, I helped him a little bit. And Paul Allen, who was a friend of mine, invested a little bit in it to get, Res Rocket it was called. And, um, mm. You know, because we did a demonstration and somebody was under a bridge in San Francisco and I was in a studio in London and some, and it was all in time. I'm thinking, blimey, if they could make that work then, why doesn't somebody do it now? I think it works better if you actually plug directly into the router, like you have uh, your computer with the Ethernet cable, supposedly. Yes. It's the Wi-Fi that often gives the, the lag. That's true, but um, what happens is they slowly... <laughs> Uh, everybody is slowly trying to get rid of those things. So, you know, um, everybody's like, no, no, yeah, everything on the cloud, and it's all right, it's all just use, uh, you know, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and this and that. And um, in the end, often, you know, things used to work better before, <laughs> you know. It's like photography, you know, I'm a photographer, so... I can go and open up a drawer from 30 years ago, pull out the contact sheet, and there are the negatives and the contact sheet stapled together. So I know that, oh, yes, this picture, number 23 on a roll of 36 is, oh, there it is. There's a negative, and I can print it as the size of a building, and it looks fantastic. You know, it's film grain. Now, if you were to try to get now and go 30 years from now and try and find your photographs took on your iPhone that are IMG 3579, whatever. <laughs> it's I'm going, how on earth? I mean, I'm already struggling with uh, hard drives and trying to make sure hard drives don't break because to get them on a cloud, right, before. Right. Because you know, people think a hard drive would be on that forever. Well, if you don't keep turning them on and checking and all that stuff, all sorts of things can go wrong, especially the early ones that have bits of moving parts in them, right? So, you know, I sound like I am an old guy, but I sound like an old guy like my dad or something like, well, you know, I like the old wooden steering wheels on the car, you know. (laughs) And then then I got an Alfa Romeo Spider from like an old, I think it was 1972 or something, when I was living in France. It was the first car I'd ever got with a wooden steering wheel, and I was going, God, actually, it does feel much better. <laughs> you know? Dad was right. Then, then, What did your dad do for a living? Uh, my dad, well, he had a funny life because when he was 18, like many boys at that age, was called up. You know, World War II was beginning, and... They didn't know what they were called up for, but he just knew he he think he was interested in being in the Air Force. 
And he imagined he was going to go somewhere, you know, and learn, you know, stuff about being in a plane. But he had some, he had a hole in his eardrum, so he wasn't allowed to do certain things. But anyway, they put him on this boat, him and some other men, and they told they were going somewhere, and they got to Glasgow, I think, to change the boat. And they were like, oh, that was a long journey, blimey, don't want to do that again. The next boat they got on took them to India. <laughs> and they were like, oh my God. On this boat for like weeks, like people throwing up and like, oh, I'd never been on a boat before. And they landed in Calcutta and he'd never seen so many people in all his life. And he spent the whole of the war living in these sort of barracks. I mean, like set up tin hut kind of place in blazing heat, hiding planes that were on uh, reconnaissance planes to try and oh, sort yeah. of work out what was happening, uh, you know, in Japan or like what, who was going there and what was happening. They had planes hidden all over the place trying to work out what was going to happen in World War Two. And uh, so when he came back, oh, sorry, there's a long story about my dad, but anyway, basically while they were away, um, a lot of the guys who had businesses would tell the ladies who worked there hey, write to a soldier, you know, write to a guy who's in India for four years or he's in wherever. Uh-huh. And they all came back and married them, of course, <laughs> you know. <laughs> my dad immediately found the girl who'd been writing to him for four years and got married. And she had a twin sister. That's and sweet. Yeah, she had a twin sister and she married her soldier who came back and they married on the same day. So it was like twins getting married in my hometown of Sunderland. Wow. And so my dad then started working for the firm that she had been working for that the boss had said send the letters, you know. And so he worked for that same firm his whole life up in Sunderland until he retired. And he loved being back home so much. He never wanted to leave Sunderland. He just like, I'd say, but dad, why don't you come and down to France or whatever? Well, you know, son, I've been to India. <laughs> I like it here. Yeah. That was like my, my grandfather who was in the Navy during the war. You know, he was in the Philippines and Russia, and he never wanted to leave the little neighborhood in New York when he got home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. It was and, like... You know, that's where he was born, and that's where he died. Yeah. No, my dad was the same, because a lot of them got malaria and all these things, and even though he says it was amazing time for bonding friendships and his friends who actually managed to get back as well, they remained friends till the day they died, you know. They And they always went, when I was with them, they all started talking about back in India because it must have been mind-blowing, you know. Of course. Well, there's a little bit of, it feels like, sitar or that Indian raga influence on uh, Don't Come Around Here Anymore, that Tom Petty song that you uh, helped create. Yes. Uh, well, actually, yeah, the whole of that track up until when the band comes in at the end is actually me playing in a hotel room. Uh, you know, I had a drum machine with me and a four-track recorder and I had a choral sitar guitar that I'd just bought somewhere, I think in San Francisco maybe. And uh, so, dear, dear, dear. And then the whole, and then I'd written and sang, you know, don't come around here no more. And I'd made the whole track with this tumbling sitar and the bass and uh -huh. the drum machine. 
But actually, I was writing it because just before that, I'd been in L.A. with Stevie Nicks, who I'd befriended. And um, I thought this could be quite good if she sang this. And so it was in the studio with Jimmy Iveen and Stevie. But Jimmy and Stevie were like breaking up. I didn't even know they were a couple, but that's a whole other story. And Jimmy was like, oh, I'm going to get Tom down here because he'd love this and we could finish it. So I said, okay, and I met Tom Petty. But anyway, when he did come down, <laughs> I was like in the middle of this argument about stop dragging my heart around because Tom was like, well, hang on. If I'm going to work on this, it's going to be mine. You're not going to put it on Stevie's record because that's uh -huh. what made his record sort of like uh, it stalled it a bit because Jimmy put stop dragging my heart around on Stevie's record, which was a duet with Tom. Anyway, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean, I, I didn't live in America. I was this guy from England who then, you know, s slowly learned, oh, this is, you know, why this argument happened. And then, you know, and then I lived with Jimmy Iveen in a house together on Mulholland for ages, but which was another amazing moment of um, me learning about American music, because obviously that doesn't sound anything like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's why at the bend, at the end, sorry, I said, why not come in at the end like in double speed and take off? And then Mike plays that amazing wah-wah solo, Mike Campbell. But... Um, but then I started to learn about American music, and not many people know this, but it's actually, actually Annie didn't even recall this till I reminded her like about six months ago, uh, that it's the Heartbreakers playing on some Eurythmics records. You know, Really? Yeah, like uh, on Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves, and I think on Would I Lie To You, yeah, and Ben Montenchon, Hammond, and stuff like that because I became really good friends with the whole gang. And then I was sort of around American musicians a lot and started to learn a lot about kind of Americana and and about Rickenbacker 12 strings. Then right here, I've got here right now, uh, I just had it out the other day, given to me by Roger McGuinn, uh, this uh, Rickenbacker 12 string that he designed with a built-in compressor, and yeah. Mm. I love that story about Stevie Nicks asking Tom Petty if she could join the Heartbreakers, and he respectfully declined and said, we don't, we don't have girls in the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I yeah. know. Uh, well, I'm like, I made the last two Stevie Nicks records, the very last one with uh, Waddy as well, but um, the one called In Your Dreams, she hadn't made a record for about 11 years or something, and I think it was because I was just, oh, yeah, I know what I did. I did, like, a, an interview with her for HBO on a show that was, like, a pilot. So I did one with her, one with Ringo, and one with you, too. And it was called Off the Record or something like that. And, um, yeah, Stevie and I started talking again, you know, about music and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And so then we wrote a song together and then she, she got really, oh, hang on, I can make music. And I'm like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> so then around her house, we would just sit around the table with acoustic guitar, you know, and 
she was amazed that we wrote two songs in an afternoon. And she's, she, then she told me ages later, you know, I've never written a song with anybody sitting down before in a room. Not, wow. even, not even with Lindsay Buckingham. And I was like, what? Then, yeah, she said, no, I've only ever written on my own or if Mike Campbell had sent me a CD or something. So, interesting. Why do you think you've had the ability to connect with so many strong female singers and songwriters? You know, you've, you've done stuff with Katy Perry, her first big record, Joss Stone, Aretha Franklin, Annie Lennox. There seems to be this this connection through the decades of you championing really strong, you know, women's work. I'm curious why you think that is. I think probably with making like eight or nine albums with Annie and living with Annie and understanding a lot about the female psyche and artists particularly and what they go through and all that stuff. So I've got a lot of uh, empathy with them. So you know, whether it was with Alison Moyer or Gwen Stefani or whoever, it's a very quickly a relaxed sort of chat or writing or whatever. I mean, the songs just seem to come out very quickly. And I think they know I made all those records with Annie and everything, so they, they kind of know that I must understand something about writing with female uh, songwriters, singers... I don't know, there's just a sort of trust there at the beginning that they don't have to gain or I don't have to gain or whatever. And so it's it's just a natural thing for me to do. Also, I'm a massive fan of uh, the sound of uh, female voices. Now, I'm a massive fan of the sound of Smokey Robinson's voice too and uh, and Bob Marley's and John Lennon's and, you know, uh, but I just landed in the, the female camp more. Although I've, you know, obviously written lots of songs and recorded them, you know, with Mick Jagger, for instance, and his voice is just, like, mind-blowing when you're in the studio recording. I didn't, I didn't realise at first when I was recording Mick that he had to perform on every song. You know what I mean? But it's just me there. <laughs> like... Right. But it doesn't really work if he's just sitting down or standing in a booth, you know? He doesn't like it. He, he likes just to be as if he was singing on a stage. How does a guy like Mick keep that stamina going, you know, into what his, what, six decades performing and he's still going strong? Like certain guys have been dead for, you know, 50 years and a lot of you guys did, let's be real, an insane amount of drugs. It's incredible that you're talking to me right now, to be real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, no, I, sh- I should have... Uh, how did you guys... How did you guys... Some people make make it through and some people didn't. You know, is it just luck of the draw? Well, you either... Like, my thing was, like, I died about two or three times and about a third time of being revived. I probably was, like... Well, I do remember I actually came out of it, like something happened, like I just wasn't interested in taking a drug, smoking a cigarette, anything. I just came out of it like, well, I actually wrote a comic book about it, a graphic novel okay, uh, called Walking. Walking is when you're in between sort of dying and the soul is about slipping out of the body. 
another one slips in, all right? You can you can Google it if you want. If you don't believe me, just Google it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and basically, uh, I came round from this operation, and I was just um, on fire creatively, uh, and not even interested in any drug or anything, and never have been since. You know, I've never like, oh yeah, I must take some acid, or I must remember to have, or do anything. I just from that last time that I woke up from an operation till now I've been really sort of um, never less, let, lost any creativity I've just always been excited about living so Mick um, he probably went through some things very early on that were like whoa this is like really going too far over the edge and then he became like fitness uh, obsessed and I mean, I've been recording him, you know, and, like, I've got films of us, you know, and, like, while the camera's filming and I'm trying to sort of work out something, I noticed the other day in the background he was doing about 300 sit-ups, you know, just while, just while he's, like, waiting for me to work something out. Or, you know, and he runs and he's very health-conscious, what he eats and everything, but he still has a great time and he's very creative and interested in everything, political history, like you can't, you know, it's just interested in everything, basically. What do you do to stay healthy and stay calm during these trying dark times? Well, you know, I'm not really that healthy and I'm not really that calm. Uh, but <laughs> okay. I, I play the guitar, I go on a walk and Fortunately, here, when you know, when they say you're allowed out for an hour exercise or something, well, here right. I can actually swim in the sea and sort of walk along a beach, and that is massive. If I couldn't do that and I was just stuck in the house the whole time, uh, I've got a studio as well, so I can record things, but I'd be going a lot more nuts. Um, but fortunately, that is a huge release. If you could create a festival right now in the Bahamas, let's say that all this pandemic stuff is passed, you could book the first five people on your festival, dead or alive, who would they be? Well, it definitely wouldn't be the producer of the Fire Festival to organize it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'd have a festival in the Bahamas because it's um, very difficult, well, to, you know, to deal with a lot of people and to get it's a lot of islands as you know hundreds mm. of islands and the main island new providence with them nassau on it um is probably you know that's the biggest island the biggest population everything but um i once was beginning to create a blues festival in saint lucia which happened to became the saint lucia blues and jazz festival and those things are sweet because, you know, you, they're only talking about 3,000 people and it's well organized and those things like that. But if I was to create a festival myself anywhere in the world... Um, yeah, where would it be? Um, oh, which, who, would, who would I ask or where would it be? Both. Well, I, I, wondered, <laughs> I wondered when I formed the band Super Heavy with Damien Marley, Mick Jagger, Joss Stone and A.R. Rahman from India, my whole idea... 
idea was to just give the music away with a you know whatever distribution company, cell phone company, or whatever, and create a festival that was uh, a festival for different kinds of genres, but not so much mm. like Real World in. Although Real World is a really good festival with Peter Gabriel's one, I meant like stuff that's really happening from different parts of the world. So now it would be like coffee from Jamaica, for instance. Um, but then the other person might be a, um, an electronic act from uh, Denmark, you know? Uh, but uh -huh. that each one of them would be really amazing and happening at what they were doing. And then at the end, you make a sort of thing with uh, you know the whole group of different artists, and you end it. So super heavy the band, you know. We mixed up all these genres: Indian music, Jamaican music, blues music, and it wouldn't be so much a huge festival, but it would be a huge sort of uh, musical experience for anybody who was interested in, uh, like I was. Uh, all the way through my life and as a kid in sound experience and the experience of new things and turning people onto new things. And then at the end of it, I would have had Super Heavy, <laughs> which was me, Mick Jagger, Damien Marley, Just Stone and A.R. Rahman and, and do like, um, you know, all the fusions joined together. If you could have worked with anyone that you weren't able to work with, who maybe has passed on, who would that be? Uh, Ray Charles. Mm. A lot of people, really. I think a lot of the uh, soul singing fraternity. And, yeah, I don't know why. I was always drawn to sort of blues, soul, gospel. Because we had up in the north, you know, northern soul. And when you went to uh, a place, well, there was only one place in Sunderland where you could go where they were playing and bands would play and all that. But it, they would play Motown music, and the same with Annie and Aberdeen. And right. so I suppose, you know, um, in the Phil Spector era, now, although, okay, well, Phil Spector's got all sorts of stories around him and everything, but I would have loved to have sat in on one of those sessions when he was uh, yeah. making some of those records. Actually, about the festival thing also, you know, I would love to do a proper blues festival. And this film, Deep Blues, which I'm going to reissue uh, next year, the film, I would really like to create a real uh, great blues festival. There are quite a few, but I would like to do it slightly differently. I mean, this Crossroads is really good too. But, you know, th there's a new area of blues music starting up. That's, as you say, that people are starting to sample and sort of create new sounds out of blues music mixed with real blues music. Or, or as I mentioned, Gary Clark Jr. and people like that. It'd be great to have yeah. a really great sort of a blues festival and, um, the, you know, to create sort of a, a catalogue filming it of uh, how blues is transforming and morphing into other kinds of music. So I would call it Deep Blues after the film and after the book. And uh, nice. that'd be nice. I'd go to that. I think, uh, you know, looking through 
your catalog. Uh, it's it's so inspiring. I think as a songwriter myself, and as a a band leader who tries to merge a lot of different types of songs that maybe wouldn't ever fit together. I have this group called uh, Dust Bowl Revival that sort of brings brass band, New Orleans funk, and oh, I love that acoustic f- folk and, and and you know gospel and all that stuff together. And some people always feel like, well, are you guys trying to bring old music into a new era or try to make new music that sounds old, you know? And I think when it comes down to it, it's about throwing out the timeline, you know? Music just exists where it is and it should exist throughout time, you know? Like Sweet Dreams, like you said, is is just as popular and needed now as it was in the 80s. It feels just part of our time and it's hard to explain why that is and it it, and I found this Apple commercial that you did in the early 90s um, where (laughs) yeah it almost it almost it almost looks like an SNL version of you where you know you're in this goatee and you're saying you know I'm stretching conventions and what is power yeah you know and it it introduces you as a cultural engineer right Mm. but it kind of it kind of works you know Mm -hmm. because I think you are trying to engineer your own culture mm-hmm. in something into something that's never been heard and seen before. And that's something that, you know, only you could have created. And maybe you, maybe they were right. Maybe you are a cultural and engineer in some form. <laughs> well, I think most artists are cultural engineers because what they trying to do is put something into the mixing bowl of uh, our culture. So when two-tone started up in Britain, for instance, well, yeah, there'd been scar and reggae and certain people knew that, but two-tone kind of brought it into the kids of 16 and 18 and never even knew what it was. And then they discovered, like, oh, this comes from uh, Jamaica, and oh, now I've discovered these Jamaican uh, music. And I think that's really important thing to constantly like i love the idea of your dust bowl was it dust bowl reunion did you call it <laughs> dust bowl revival yeah or dust bowl revival right so um i love that because yeah we were just recording trombone and trumpet yesterday of two local island guys that play in the brass marching band and um the sounds of these things are just like going back to the organic sound, are just like um, unbelievable. Like, how are you going to beat it? How are you going to beat the sound of a trombone? You, you can't. So I always think that the best thing is never trying to compete with anything. It's to make a unique mixture or a blend, but be unique in a way by putting these odd things together. So I, I, was, I was thinking about having a podcast and... Um, my podcast, I'm calling it Poe, just P-O, hmm. because there's a guy, Edward de Bono, lateral thinker, who wrote lots of books on lateral thinking. I think he first came up with the idea of that word, which is neither yes or no, but it's based on P-O, which is, has potential, positive, all this kind of stuff. And to talk about the things we're talking about is why does it have to be like totally like this you know what i mean why does yeah uh, you know can't it have a bit of this you know and i think you know all of the artists throughout the world you know throughout history and everything 
there was rules, you know, and then somebody came along, like impressionists, and went, why do we have to be completely decorative and paint a tree exactly how it looks? Why can't we just paint our memory of it and the impression of it? And then you got, mm. you know, all these conceptualists and dadaists and same in chefs cooking. Why does this have to be like this? Can't I just add this thing? Um, and I think they're all cultural engineers. You know, they, they sort of make a shift in our culture that is important. And if, if people didn't keep doing that, everything would be suddenly, uh, as Visage said, fade to grey. I don't know if the internet is to be trusted, but did you play trombone on Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It? That would be a very difficult thing for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's listed in your production credits. No, but there music. is a trombone. No there's a trombone player called Dave Stewart, and um, he's often in my credits. Oh. And I often feel like saying yes, but then the better half of me says... <laughs> Sorry about that. No. And there's another Dave Stewart yeah. in Hatfield in the north who's often jumbled up in my credits and I'm sure I'm jumbled up in his but uh, he made a lot of stuff and uh, there's no way to untangle it you know yeah well I'm super glad that I was able to listen to this record you did with Thomas Lindsay uh, how do you say it Am- Amite Amitié yeah and you know it's you know meaning friendship or camaraderie in, in French or Creole and, and yeah. it's just it's a unique record that I think no one's ever heard something quite like this. And the way you've paired your slide Dobro with his voice, it feels just primordial in a way. And I'm, I want to see if you can uh, introduce one song before we go that you would like our audience to hear. Um, well, I'll introduce a couple and then you can choose. So uh, first I'd like to introduce uh, a song called Storm Came. It literally, it's so weird because uh, not long ago here on the islands was an incredible, terrible, powerful storm, uh, Hurricane Dorian. And, and the song isn't about that. It's just that when Thomas sang into his uh, microphone in Louisiana on top of my Dobro guitar, which I played in a Paris hotel room, when it came to the storm came, knocked us down, I thought, well, I was thinking about, like, that storm was so insanely powerful that I just came crashing in with the heavy-duty synthesizer and drums. And then back to, you know, when a storm disappears, it's so weird. It's so light and airy and the air clears. So I'd like you to play Storm King. There's a train out there. I hear it coming
And the other one I'd like to uh, introduce is this song. There's nothing really on this song apart from me playing the guitar and Thomas singing until it morphs into this sort of freak out after a military band that was marching by. But the beginning bit, it's called Brothers in Arms. And um, yeah, I love that one. You know, I played this melody, and sent it to Thomas, and he sang that those words on top. And it was kind of the beginning of the idea of the album being called Friendship. And, you know, thinking really, okay, so Brendan Behan, the Irish writer, said friendship is higher than love. And just before I got married um you know i mean literally you know minutes before or actually it was like minutes after um bono and edge made up a song uh using that friendship is higher than love and then everybody started singing it and basically we were all out of our minds but um it is this sort of feeling about friendship and that you know, it's unconditional in a way, and it's if you can get all of that together and put it into um, the universe and send it out there, uh, that's what we were kind of doing on that song. But when the military mm. band comes marching in, and then it almost turns into war <laughs> with me playing like Hendrix's yeah. style at the end, and it sounds like, uh oh turmoil but the beginning is very just natural it's just how we would sound at a festival thomas and i just double guitar and him singing and that song brothers in arms for some reason it rings every time i hear it begin i'm like oh this is amazing Yeah. 
I hope uh, a lot of people are able to hear this record, and it, it was really an honor to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing what craziness you come up with next, because <laughs> yeah. who knows what's going on in that brain. And oh, my it's, God. It's an amazing, amazing body of work that you've created. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, my life won't leave me alone, so um, my brain is like always, help, switch it off, but like a very strong vodka martini uh, at about 8 o'clock, usually does the trick. Big thanks to Dave for talking to me and being so generous with his time. Uh, his new record, Amate, with Stuart Lindsay, comes out July 17th on Basin Street Records. It's really unclear right now when nightclubs and festivals uh, and the whole touring circuit for musicians will open up again. You know, the cases of COVID-19 are still going up in most of the country, and it's weird because everyone's kind of acting like it's over. It is not. Please wear your mask. Be careful, especially if you're out there protesting. It's really important. And when things open up again, I'm probably going to be in the front row to see Stuart Lindsay and Dave Stewart play live. 
If you're curious what my band Dust Bowl Revival is up to, we are planning Suede Home Music Fest 3 for the end of June, 27th and 28th of the month. We'll have a whole lineup of bands coming, so look out for that. And we just released a funny duet that I did with our wonderful trombone player, Ulf Bjorlin, of the Sinatra classic Something Stupid, one of my all-time favorite songs. Also, if you have a moment, please visit our brand new website, theshowontheroad.com, where you can find video of a lot of the artists that I've been interviewing and all the episodes that we've ever done. And while you're at it, if you go over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that I wrote a piece called Listen to These Black Voices. It also was an episode last week where I talk about some of the interviews I did with my favorite Americana black artists like Sonny War, Birds of Chicago, Bobby Rush, The Warren Treaty, Liz Vice, and more. I really hope you can listen to this. It means a lot to me, and I will see you out on the protest trail. Stay safe and stay creative, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash Show on the Road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the BluegrassSituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.